recent events, culture, philosophy, public policy, and faith through the ancient art of truth-telling. Join the conversation and gain an alternative perspective with a difference in thought. This podcast is an honor and homage of the work and mission of the great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Our core philosophy here is that basic arithmetic teaches us that there can be no difference without subtraction. Before considering where you'd like to see a difference, first consider where you're willing to take a subtraction. This is a special edition of A Difference in Thought, A Difference in Conversation, live, going upstream. Now, uh, here's an update that I've been keeping from you listeners, not from for some sinister reason or anything like that, but just a lot of things moving on. So, <clears throat> I have a new job, I kind of have a new career, actually, I don't know if you call it career, but <laughs> I am now a community organizer, I no longer work at my past job, um, just know that some of you were uh, following me as I was starting the African American Network at my job, and let's just say retaliation is real, <laughs> but that's okay, I am expanding my horizons and now uh, looking for to improve work and the conditions, not just at my job, but in my city. And so I'm excited uh, to be a community organizer. And so uh, my my job now is really connecting community leaders and connecting the faith uh, community and seeing how they can help build and change the cycle of our city. Uh, So it's been an interesting week. uh, And uh, so really, we're really talking about how the history uh, of, of my city is really steeped in a lot of racism and white supremacy and really being the former capital of the Confederacy, uh, a lot of that uh, has to uh, deal with the history of the city uh, and how we still live in what I like to call a whirlpool of history, where the momentum uh, and, and, and the energy and the decisions that were made before us, still uh, we feel the currents of those decisions and those values today, and we are born into this cycle. But within the cycle, we have agency. We have power to indeed change the cycle. Speaking of the cycle of our city, I was I was uh, walking outside and I saw some um, police officers on bicycles, 
uh, or bicycles. Oh, how about that? No, that's that's terrible. <laughs> the bicycles. And so I just said, oh, man, it's really a concentrated police presence. What is going on today, right? And so then I come back uh, from uh, church, and then I see an officer. I met, met, met a brother named Officer Scarborough. And uh, so I say, hey, man, what's what's kind of going on? And he says, oh, hey, well, let me tell you, man. So he points to me. And, and so apparently with it being close to the anniversary of Charlottesville, some uh, people from out of town wanted to come and do their same propaganda, heritage, not hate. Or as he said, the same old, same old, you know, heritage, not hate and all those other types of things. So he was a brother. He said, hey, I, you know, I got to be here in case something happens. Thankfully, it's been peaceful. But also, you know, um, I'm, 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 uh, you know, making sure, trying to make sure that nothing happens. So, you know, I got a plan B too. And so he just was, you know, saying, you know, hey, you know, so far it's been peaceful. And he, but he said, you know, it's the same old, same old. And so he was talking about, man, the cycle doesn't, hasn't changed. The things that we've been fighting about and, and, and the propaganda and the history and the violence, uh, it's not something new, but it is part of this whirlpool that we are in. Uh, and it's sustained by momentum. And so, I don't want to give the panel discussion away. So for my new job, I was able to have an event. It's called Going Upstream, Going Upstream, uh, Organizing Sustained Streams of Revolution. And what I was talking about and what you'll get to hear in the panel discussion is getting to hear how uh, history is in cycles and that within this cycle, we have agency to either sustain and contribute momentum to the current a cycle of inequity, or we can change and resist. But what does what will it take to change and resist? I will talk about that a little bit in the speech that I had right before the panel discussion. But we had it was a great it's a great panel discussion. I was honored to have uh, the head of the community care unit for Richmond Police Department, uh, Officer Carol Adams. Um, I was honored to have Director Kim Bobo of the Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy. They've had some recent. Uh, wins on Medicaid expansion and raising the, the felony theft amount from 250 to 500. And she'll talk about the history of that and why that was important. We also got to talk to uh, Nicole Mason, uh, who's a specialist in uh, trauma-informed care. Uh, 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 Pastor Mary Gleaton, uh, who I serve with uh, in some of the roughest neighborhoods in Richmond, as, as people would say, as even the Attorney General of the, the state has 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 announced, and also a sister named Katie from uh, Crossover Healthcare Ministry, which is the largest free health clinic in Virginia, and the good work that they do. And so I get to interview them, just kind of see how the, the history of Richmond, this cycle, and this whirlpool affects their work, and also uh, what we can do to support them in changing them. And so it's an interesting, um, interesting panel discussion. And for all the people who have been saying, man, when are you going to get guests? When are you going to get guests? Well, guess what? Daggone it. We got five of them and they are superb guests. So welcome to the special edition of A Difference in Thought called A Difference in Conversation live going upstream. So without any further ado, here is A Difference in Conversation. We're here to talk about going upstream. Firstly, let me introduce the panelists that we have here. Thank you all for your time and your patience here. Uh, we have Officer Carol Adams of the Community Care Unit of Richmond Police Department. She also is uh, the head of the Carol Adams Foundation that does a lot of work with helping uh, domestic abuse survivors. 
Uh, we have Pastor Mary Gleaton, the Faith Covenant Fellowship Church. I've worked with her for, what, I think two years now, maybe. And she's really just the, the mother of her community there in Mosby and Creighton Court and, and uh, really just beautiful work with the children. Uh, Nicole Mason is, uh, can, can I say an expert or a specialist? Specialist. <laughs> she doesn't want that part. <laughs> uh, really a, a specialist. And I, I, I came across her uh, in a civic uh, education program that really, and she really helped us understand uh, trauma-informed care and what trauma really does to the brain and how important that is to integrate that in the work that we do. And so that's her stream that she, that she adds. We also have Katie St. Germain a crossover healthcare ministry. Uh, I think crossover healthcare is the largest uh, free clinic, health clinic in Virginia. And i uh, excited to hear more about her work. And we have Director Kim Bobo from Virginia Interfaith Center of Public Policy. Uh, and she's been, uh, they've been really doing great work with uh, recently uh, Medicaid expansion and raising the felony uh, theft uh, threshold as well from 250 to 500, still trying to get it a little bit higher. But we're going to hear more about their work and their individual streams. But before then, we're going to take a look at a video that's going to kind of help to solidify our theme tonight. The world is in constant revolution. A revolution is simply a cycle. We measure our years by a full revolution around the sun. To participate in a revolution is to participate in understanding, engaging, and either continuing or changing the direction of a cycle. We are all born into a cycle, a whirlpool that has already been developed by the tides and cycles of history. From the time the ships carrying enslaved Africans arrived on the James River at Manchester, Richmond had already been engaged in the whirlpool of false human hierarchies. The tides of this whirlpool have historically swept through government, business, education, health, and even religious institutions. These currents of inequity gathered force and momentum both from those who participated knowingly and from those who simply just rode the currents of the time. With its currents permeating through the micro and macro systems of Richmond, it will take a sustained, multi-systemic stream of revolution to change the cycles of our city. The Christian church in Richmond specifically has historically complied, but also resisted the false theology that emerged from oppressive societal streams of their time. The same religious institution that was misused by some to justify segregation is also the same institution that marched and organized against segregation to demand a more equitable society. The Christian faith informs its followers to not just be conformed and caught up in the streams of their time. It instructs that followers not be overcome by the streams of oppression, but instead overcome streams of oppression with streams of justice. Go upstream. tonight to talk about changing the cycle of our city. 
And the reason why we have all of these wonderful people here is because they have in their own individual streams and in their interconnected streams have found ways to resist the history of Richmond that was based on a false human hierarchy that some people matter and that some people do not. And their work is a testament and a resistance against that. So when we're talking about changing the tide, sometimes it's good to understand how the earth and the patterns of the world and the universe educate us on what we do here on earth. And so when we're talking about changing the tide, tides are affected mostly by two things. They're, they're by rotations of the earth and also relationships between the moon and the sun. And so when we're talking about changing the tide, as Lisa Sharon Harper was talking about and as Dr. Diane was talking about, we have to embrace uh, changing our relationships and changing our rotation. Now, there's a difference also between a rotation and a revolution. And so for this conversation, uh, uh, the difference between a rotation and a revolution is what it is centered around. Basically, are we rotating around values that only are about our, our organizations, about our work, about our individual acts, or are we working together and wanting to build a revolution that is about uh, the system that we are involved in, the city that we are involved in? Uh, and so a rotation is only takes one rotation. A rotation of the earth only takes one rotation around the earth to uh, form a day. But when you're talking about what requires a revolution, a revolution requires 365 rotations, right? Which talks about, and that's how we get a year. And so it's talking about a revolution is just simply sustained rotations. And so when we're talking about impacting our city, we have to talk about what is sustainable and also who are we connected with for the highest impact. And so since a rotation is how we measure days, but a revolution is how we measure years, if you want to start a revolution and you want to measure your impact in years, you need to start a revolution, meaning that you need to connect your streams and your organizations and your causes together to have a more sustainable stream. Uh, one, one story that I always admire is of Barbara Johns, a 16-year-old from Farmville, Virginia, who decided in her own school, in her own individual stream, that she was going to plan a walkout due to the unjust uh, uh, systems in her school under segregation. Now, segregation was supposed to be separate but equal, but she found that separate was unequal and she wasn't going to have it. And so she, she um, forged letters actually to her teachers <laughs> to get to, to say, Every, everybody in the school come to the auditorium. So when she gets to the auditorium, she gets up and she says, the scriptures say that the children shall lead us. And I believe that God is on our side in moving against this unjust stream and cycle that we are in currently. And so not only that, did she build a walkout with 450 uh, uh, classmates, she also added her stream on the public policy level with Oliver Hill, who then took her case, who then took her case. And then that was a part of the cases uh, in Brown versus Board of Education, with then added to the stream with Thurgood Marshall. And Thurgood Marshall took his their stream up together up to the Supreme Court. And that's how uh, they were able to win uh, uh, to disband uh, separate but an equal for though for integration. And so people then resisted against her in what we call massive resistance. Uh, but the, the funny thing is that uh, I think in 2013, the very building where people chose to plan to resist against her was now named after her because she knew the power 
of going upstream. And she knew that, that if she wanted to build, she took her rotation, her inner rotation of I'm not going to stand for this. And she gathered energy and power and resources with people in her community. And she built a revolution, which we are still living in the impact of that. And so tonight we're talking about the whirlpool of history that we're in, that we are in a pattern of history that cycle was formed long before us, just like just like Barbara Johns. And, and this history is uprooting those who were established before us. And we see people who are in the margins of history and those who are in the center of it. But whirlpools are both sustained and changed by momentum. And so the inner work for us is to realize that we are already in a revolution. We are already in a cycle. The question is, are we going to contribute momentum to the current cycle that we are in of inequity? Or are we going to resist and also collectively uh, partner with people who are resisting so that it can be sustainable? Uh, Dr. King said it this way. He says, in spite of this imperative demand to live differently, which the Christian faith calls its followers to not be conformed, but to transform. He says, we have cultivated a mass mind and have moved from the extreme of rugged individualism to the even greater extreme of rugged collectivism. We are not makers of history. We are made by history. Longfellow said, in this world, a man must either be an anvil or a hammer, meaning that he is either a molder of society or is molded by society. Who doubts that today most men are anvils and are shaped by the patterns of the majority or to change the figure most people and Christians in particular, are thermometers that record or register the temperature of majority opinion, that uh, not thermostats that transform and regulate the temperature of society. And so we are born into a history that shapes us, but also within this world where we have agency, we have power to not just be shaped by society and history, but we have the power to shape the cycle that we were born in. And so the truth about revolution Question is not, are we going to join a revolution? The, the difference in thought is recognizing that we are always and already in a revolution. And our individual streams are either going to contribute to the momentum that sustains the current cycle of inequity in our city, or they are going to build a new system of revolution and of justice. And so the work here is to mind your momentum which is your inner work of revolution, and to maximize your momentum. So if you, are, if you are in an organization or in a heart of resistance, it's not enough just to individually make the rotation, as we talked about earlier. Your job is to interconnect, and, and, and that's why the event is called Organizing Sustained Streams of Revolution, because it is in the interconnectedness, which we'll be displaying later uh, when, in, our, in our panel discussion, that's going to lead to the revolution. And so going upstream is organizing to take our momentum from the current cycle and creating sustained streams of resistance to create a new cycle for our city. And so Lisa Sharon Harper, uh, she mentioned something about the core lie of a society. And so it's traditional systems thinking. You have micro, which is kind of the individual, the mezzo, which is kind of the neighborhoods, the communities, the schools. And then you have the macro, which is law, public policy, and government. And so what we talk about here in faith-rooted organizing is that we recognize that above all of those systems, that a society's systems revolve around a core truth or a core lie. So in Richmond, one of the core lies we, we brought out was a false, a false human hierarchy of value, meaning that some people that, that in Richmond, that white people are, are valued more than non-white people, and that it's okay to keep people out. And Dr. Uh, and Michael Mata, who was also on the call, 
he likes to describe uh, systemic intervention as three things. There's giving someone a fish, which is something that you can do for an individual. There's teaching someone how to fish is how you equip someone. And then the higher level he talks about is, do we question in our society who actually gets access to the pond versus who is denied that in the pond? And so when we're talking about going upstream, what we're talking about is we're going from the individual and also building that momentum and stream into uh, the neighborhoods, churches, schools, and businesses, and then building that up into the law of public policy and government because the, pr the problem is that the core lie permeates through all of these levels. If there's a core lie of some people are valued more than others, what does that mean for the types of law and public policy that is written? If some people don't value, uh, aren't valued, then, then how, are, how are they valuing how, who, who deserves to be taught how to fish and who doesn't? What does, and what does that oppression do to an individual? What trauma does that cause an individual? What pressure does that put on a family unit, on someone's physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health? So when we're talking about interconnected streams, we need to be interconnected because the core lie is not operating in a silo. It's operating in all systems. And so our, our uh, reaction must also do that. Now, if you were to look at an example of how a core lie, how this core lie is operating in Richmond, this, these uh, VCUs and their Center on Society and Health found out that there were, in short distance in mileage, that there is vastly uh, differing uh, life expectancies. So, so in Gilpin Court, your life expectancy per this study is 63 years. But if you just go across the river to Westover Hills, a 20-year difference in life expectancy. And so you see that that core lie is still permeating on our side that some people matter and some people do not. When you when in a study that was that was uh, in Richmond magazine comparing Gilpin Court to, to foreign countries, you see that that people in Gilpin Court only only had a life expectancy higher than two years higher than people in Afghanistan under Syria. <laughs> and people but in that same city, people in Westover Hills had a, had a higher average, had a four-year higher average than other people in the United States. In the same city, in the same cycle, in the same whirlpool, in the same society, some are being drawn to the center and some are being pushed to the margins because there's a core lie that our society builds upon. And not only is it individual, but then you go and see in these same two places, uh, unemployment rates, 19 percent unemployment rate versus a two percent unemployment rate uh, private health insurance where 10 percent of people uh uh only had health insurance versus 84 percent no health insurance 16 percent versus five percent uh people living below the poverty line 73 percent versus one percent and they're not even that many miles apart these aren't different countries these aren't even different states this is all the whirlpool that we have been born into. Uh, and, it, and it spreads through education, unhealthy housing, uh, uh, food deserts, uh, when we're talking about health equity, uh, proximity to highways. All of these things are operating through these different things. And this is what it looks like when a core lie is in work at a soci in, in society. And not only that, it even went up to the higher levels where it, they, they, they uh, in 1937, where uh, a mayor passed a law that said that people that by the books were not allowed to live together uh, or were not able to marry should not 
lived together, they were able to redline and segregate housing. And this is a map in 1937. Of, and the red was where they would not highly concentrated African-American communities that they would not give loans to, that they were trying to lock out of their society in this whirlpool. This is who they wanted on the margins. And then the green is who they wanted in, in the center. And so they, they, they fast forward and tracked how this whirlpool and this revolution had been sustained through history. And they found that the life expectancy at birth in these same communities almost parallel and mirrored where people were separated out. And so when we talk about a whirlpool of history, where we're talking about we're still living in uh, uh, the effects of the core lie that appeared in our, in our society far before 1937, but hey, 1937, it is the same because it has been sustained. And so when we're talking about this conversation, that we're, we're framing this conversation with, our, with our, our, our streams of truth that we have gathered here, I want you to mind your momentum in saying, has my organization, has my vote, has my energy, has my life work resisted or contributed to this core lie cycling in our, throughout our society? And so that's what it looks like when a core lie is permeating through a society. And if you're wondering what does it look like if a core truth were to go through law and public policy and schools and churches and neighborhood and health and families and individuals, you can look right to the left of me. <laughs> and so we're going to begin our panel discussion here. And uh, I just want you all to just remember um, uh, this system as we're having our conversation. And so... Um, we can start with Director Kim down there. You can pass the mic. Can we get the third mic back up here if it's out there somewhere in the <laughs> in the distance? First of all, welcome everyone. Thank you. Could you all give them a round of applause for them for them coming? And really excited about that. Uh, and so we'll start with Director Kim. Uh, can you can you tell us more about the legacy of your work with Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy and? Um, uh, and really what your hope is for Richmond and just kind of how faith informs what you what you do. Sure. Okay, so uh, Virginia Interfaith Center was started 37 years ago with the mission of engaging the faith community on economic and social justice issues, particularly with a focus on the General Assembly. Um, and so we have nine chapters around the state. We have uh, local activists in almost every legislative district in the state, um, and we try to bring the faith voice into the General Assembly. Um, I was asked to come lead the organization about two and a half years ago. Um, I came from Chicago, where I had founded and run for 18 years uh, Interfaith Worker Justice. Um, so I came and really worked with the board about how do we narrow the agenda so we can be more effective. Um, you know, because like many in the faith community, we wanted to work on everything, but you can't do that and be effective at the same time. And so we really narrowed the agenda um, to just a couple issues. And this last year, uh, after the uh, November election, uh, it was so clear that we had a new opportunity on Medicaid expansion. And so honestly, we poured almost everything we had into the fight on Medicaid expansion. Uh, we did 11 press conferences around the state, two in the General Assembly. We did six community forums and swing Senate districts. 
we did a clergy sign-on letter with 750 clergy and almost every judicatory leader in the state that we distributed uh, to all the legislators and ran paid ads in eight swing districts. Um, anyway, I could go on and on, but I mean, if we had an idea that we thought would work, we did it, right? Um, and, and so I'm really proud, and I think everyone in the fight recognizes the role that the faith community played in this incredible victory. Um, so we've also really tried to look, um, in part because I have this background on wage issues, but also because wages is just so core uh, to ending poverty. Um, you know, you can't look at housing, you can't look at homelessness or, or hunger without recognizing that it's mostly because people either don't have jobs or increasingly in Virginia, they don't have jobs that pay enough. Um, and, and so you got to look at this. And so um, I was asked to talk a little bit about sort of some of our analysis around um, really the effects of slavery and Jim Crow on our wage laws in the state of Virginia. So do you want me to just jump into that? Uh, sure, yeah, you can jump right into that, sure. <laughs> okay, uh, so you probably know um, at the national level, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the core minimum wage over time, it's the core child labor issues uh, law, um, that was passed in 1938. It was only able to get passed because the Southern senators, including Virginians, um, said the only way we'll support it is if you exempt all domestic workers and all farm workers. Well, think about who in the South were domestic workers and farm workers, right? Um, so, so again, you have this fundamental uh, legacy of slavery built into the federal labor laws, um, which continues today in terms of farm labor, right? Um, now, there was recently a fight that included, finally allowed domestic, just a couple years ago, to get domestic workers covered by um, Fair Labor Standards Act. So, so again, that's, that's the federal law. Virginia didn't get its own labor laws until 1975. And if you look at Virginia's, uh, currently Virginia's state minimum wage exempts, and I'm reading it to you, any person employed as a farm laborer or farm employee, any person employed in domestic service, newsboys, shoeshine boys, caddies on golf courses, babysitters, ushers, doormen, concession attendants, and cashiers in theaters. What does that have in common? Absolutely. Almost every category of worker exempted under Virginia's law today, this is Virginia's law, um, historically were jobs held by African Americans in Virginia. Um, so it is indeed Jim Crow embodied in our labor law in Virginia today. Third labor issue that I think is, is really so affected by our uh, history um, is, is the tip minimum wage. 
Um, so the U.S. has a two-tier minimum wage, both federally and at the state level. Um, so, you know, most workers um, are covered by sort of the regular wage, but restaurant workers and tipped workers have a lower minimum wage, um, which is two thirteen an hour, right? Now, you, you actually technically have to, the tip minimum wage plus your tips have to bring you up to the regular minimum wage, right? Um, but we should look at how this came about. Um, so tipping started by the aristocracy in Europe, tipping their servants, right? Um, and what happened is immediately after the Civil War in the U.S., um, restaurant industry and railroads um, wanted to create a tipped wage for these freed slaves working in these industries. Um, and there was actually a huge fight in the U.S. over this question of tip tipping people because it was sort of viewed as un-American, right? That it wasn't democratic, it wasn't fair, it wasn't a way to treat workers. Um, and yet, in the South, the restaurant industry and railroads really rammed through this concept of tipping workers. And so, it changed in Europe. You don't have tipped workers. They have a regular minimum wage. And in the US, we continued this practice because of our history of slavery. Um, and then it got, it too got embodied in the Fair Labor Standards Act. So we have a two tier wage system of the tip workers and sort of other workers. Um, so again, I think we need to recognize that the tipped minimum wage, which is alive and well in Richmond, is really a legacy of slavery as well. And then finally, in terms of the labor laws, um, is right to work, right? Everyone, maybe you don't know, right to work does not mean the right to work. It is a uh, disguised language for a way to undermine unions and, the, and workers' rights to organize. Uh, my friends in the union movement say it's the right to work for less. Um, so this, the right to work started happening after the Civil War, where in southern states you had, you know, all these freed slaves um, who then you know, we're supposed to be getting paid. And so what happened is in all the southern states, they started this whole penal labor system where they would arrest people for minor infractions or for debt, put people into jail, and then use prison labor to work for private industries, right? Uh, that created conflict uh, between African-American workers in these penal things and, uh, and white workers who didn't want to be undermined by penal labor. And so then there were huge fights in the South over this question of penal labor, right? Because efforts to drive down wages hurt all workers, white and black workers. 
Um, so there were these huge labor fights around it. And then workers and these and a number of places, the white workers would insist that penal labor in general be stopped and that people be paid the same wages. This led to workers starting to organize. And when workers organized across racial lines, they could win. And at that point, 19 Jim Crow states passed right-to-work laws, right, undermining unions, including Virginia. And frankly, there were almost no other right-to-work laws that passed. Um, they passed initially this wave of them in the South, uh, sort of in the whole Jim Crow era. Um, and then in 2008, when the economy uh, faltered, the right wing used that moment to try and pass through some more right-to-work laws. And so the very fact that we have very few unions in Virginia is really a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow in the state. Um, and, and so as we look forward to moving forward, I mean, one of the things we're going to do in this coming General Assembly in 2019 is we're going to try and remove all those Jim Crow provisions. We've got people committed to introducing the legislation. We're going to, we, we think we, we can win that. We're also going to do a number of other things to try and strengthen enforcement against wage theft. These things trying to set us up for 2020 when we can look at the questions around the minimum wage and some of the broader questions on that. Uh, we'll also be working on two things related to immigrants um, in, in, the, in the state. One on, on trying to get a driver's privilege card, right? If you're an undocumented immigrant, you can't get a driver's card in, in Virginia. And then what happens is people get picked up on minor violations. They get pulled over and arrested and deported because they have no driver's card, right? I mean, that's craziness. Um, we're going to also work on in-state tuition for undocumented kids. Right now, you know, these young people, they've gone through our high schools. They've been raised in Virginia. But if they don't have documentation, they can't get in-state tuition. Um, and DACA kids can, but if they lose their DACA status, which could happen under this crazy president, um, they will also lose their in-state tuition. So we don't want that to happen. Um, we'll probably also be doing something on evictions and one piece on criminal justice reform. Um, so again, you can see that I think there's legislative things we can do right now that directly come out of our our history of slavery and uh, racism and discrimination in Virginia. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's definitely that's definitely a very key like way of pointing out how we're still living in the whirlpool of that legislation, and it takes resistance and organizing that in order to to reverse that. When you were talking about uh, the working poor and and about wage and definitely about immigration, I know that's definitely an intersection with Katie. And would you mind talking about how her work maybe helps embolden what you guys are doing and also what you do at Crossover Health? So I'm a nurse practitioner at Crossover Ministry. Uh, we are the largest free clinic in the state of Virginia. We have two locations, one on Corden Avenue and one in, uh, right across from Regency Mall on the west end of Henrico. Uh, our clinic has, our, our organization has been up and running for about 20 years. Uh, when we first came about, a lot of people raised an raise their eyelids about why are we going to be building a clinic in the West End of Henrico? 
um, and I think this is important to, to understand. Um, thankfully, our, our, our founders kind of saw the vision of how things were moving. They, they were able to look at the revolutions and be forward thinking about how things are happening. Right now in the United States, there are more people living in poverty in the suburbs than there are in the cities, especially in the suburbs that are immediately adjacent to the cities. And the reason for that is people can't afford to live in the city. So they're working in the city, but they're living in the suburbs. And so what is that doing for a revenue cycle for the city? Um, so we, where our clinic in the West End is located, it is also the refugee center for uh, the Henrico County, which is, I believe we are the largest county um, taking in refugees. Um, I'm sorry, we've taken the most refugees for a single county than anywhere else in the state of Virginia. Northern Virginia also takes in um, a, lar a large amount of refugees, but I think per county, Henrico actually wins out. Um, and so when you talk about the working poor and labor laws, um, we I see that every day in my clinic. I see people who are working um, very hard, often two or three jobs, but they don't have any access to health care. Um, their jobs do not provide insurance for them. Um, they do not even make enough money to um, buy into the Affordable Care Act. The government actually gives them a pass on that because they don't have that they don't have enough money to be able to to uh, even pay for that. Um, so we very much see the working poor every every single day. Um, and when I hear about what they're what they're living through with and what they're um, kind of the cycles of violence that they have to deal with all the time, um, the cycles of trauma that is manifested in their lives, it absolutely affects their health. And so uh, we have a lot of uh, supporters in the community because they realize that if you want a healthy community, you have to have healthy people. And uh, that again looks, uh, takes on many different forms. It's not just about writing a prescription when someone has an ailment, it's about getting to the actual need of what's wrong. So um, an example I, I give often is I have um, a lot of patients with chronic headaches. And um, I would say that's one of our most frequent complaints. Um, it would be very easy to write a prescription for headache medicine, and you will see many healthcare providers do that. Um, when I have a patient tell me they have chronic headaches, I work really hard to get to the root cause of that. Um, and overwhelmingly what I find is there's a problem with depression. So we know that um, depression can manifest in many ways. It can often manifest in physical pain. Um, a lot of times it's a problem with insomnia. They're so anxious at night, um, especially worrying about their children and how they're gonna put food on the table, how they're gonna get them to school the next day. They can't sleep. Well, insomnia can lead to headaches. And so it's, it's not a headache problem we have, it's an insomnia problem that we have, which is really an anxiety problem. Um, sometimes it's trauma. Um, when I you know, kind of dig deeper, how long have you been having these headaches? And I find out, oh, it's, it's when you immigrated from Venezuela. Um, I had a, a patient the other day, very bright. She was in um, college in Venezuela when the government kind of imploded. And so her, um, at, on her college campus, police invaded and gang raped many of the women in, in the bathrooms. And so because of that, she has not been able to sleep since that happened. And so again, that is, she presented with headaches, but when we were able to stop and talk about what's really going on, we realized it was a problem of trauma. It's not about just the headache and let me give you a pill. And so when we're, when we're dealing with matters of health, we find very quickly that there are 
lots of different things that are going on in the community that are affecting the health of an individual. And so it's not just about what medicines am I going to give you. It's about how am I going to support you? How am I going to give, um, provide care to your mind, your body, your spirit? Uh, and so that is what we try to offer at Crossover. We, um, we have, we're so blessed. We have many counseling volunteers. We have um, psychiatry services. We have dental. We have vision services. It's hard to be fully functioning in your job if you can't see. And so, um, you know, being able to provide vision services to a patient so that they can actually do their job and be able to read to, as they need to to be able to see to do their work is hugely important. Um, we have full-time social workers at each site um, so that they can kind of bridge the gaps. A huge gap that we see for our patients, just in terms of getting to us physically, but also um, a chronic problem that they have is transportation. Um, if they don't have good transportation, they can't get to their job, which continues the cycle of poverty. Um, and uh, so that's one of the, a, a determinant to access to care that we would really like um, to work on, for the city to work on. Um, and I think what else? Um, I, what I would say is we very much see these cycles live out every single day. And um, we see how it manifests in an individual. Um, and so we're trying to, to help individuals um, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, but it requires a relationship. Um, we are blessed to have been um, to be in, have been in the community for 20 years, and we hope continue for many more after that. Um, but all of this ha happens to, to be with a relationship. So um, a lot of times it's really when I've seen a patient maybe two or three times that you start to peel the layers of the onion and get to the root cause. Um, and so um, what Alan had asked me to speak about was the, the difference of being a sustained presence in the community versus a missional event. And, and so I think what that boils down to, the efficacy is about relationships. With a one-time event, it's very hard to develop relationships in a meaningful manner to get to the heart of the problem. When you're a sustained presence, you can build relationships that, like I said, peel back the layers of the onion to get to the true heart of the matter when it comes to providing care for our individual patients, but also care for the community. Yeah, that's great. That's very important work. And uh, what really impressed me about Crossover Health is incorporating the mental health aspect as well. One of the leading fields in health is psychoneuroimmunology, which talks about how the, the mental state affects the nervous system, which then affects Im the immune system and this holistic approach and the interconnectedness of that. I know, uh, Nicole, you live kind of on the on the lane of, of, of trauma and uh, uh, helping people work with that. Uh, could you tell us more about kind of what you do and how you see uh, your work interconnected with some of the panelists here? Yeah. Well, I would like to say good evening to everybody. You guys have been so attentive and engaged. Um, my name is Nicole Mason. I've lived in Richmond for 36 years. Um, and my work has been, uh, my focus has been in teaching people, whether it's school professionals or parents or clients about trauma. Um, but I would like to say, uh, I know I'm in good company with people who understand that although we have a mental health um, education and background, that the word of God really confirms all these things that we're sharing. You know, it talks about as a man thinks, so is he. So the things that we sometimes create this hierarchy of mental health, that mental health has the answers, 
they're seeking the answers just as much as everyone else is. And I believe the church has the answers to a lot of those questions. Um, so my previous experience was working with the agency that specialized with children who experienced trauma. And to be honest with you, the kids came in with so many traumas that we couldn't catch up to the first trauma while we're working on the first trauma. So you came in because uh, you saw someone shot, but you waited on our waiting list for three months. And by that time you've been displaced three times, you're in foster care. And then by the time you see me, um, your foster care person has changed and now you are in fights in school and got suspended and put in an alternative school. So the challenge that we faced or the challenge that I believe I faced was that I felt like I couldn't keep up with the traumas. Um, and the need is so great that this particular agency was the main agency that everybody goes to, but the need is more significant than what they can handle. Um, and ultimately, if I'm a Christian who's a licensed professional counselor, I don't necessarily work with Christians specifically. I don't necessarily bring my Bible into work and lay it on the table and say, tell me all your problems because Jesus has an answer. That's not my thing. You know, there's some counselors who are Christian counselors and I respect them and I need them and they're awesome. But I knew I was called to a secular setting. But what does it look like to be in a secular setting in mental health when mental health is really the way we're trained is to help people to cope. In my faith, people get healed. So I'm not gonna spend the next 10 to 12 years helping you learn how to walk with this broken leg that you have. I'm gonna get you the best crutches. You know, you're gonna have the best boot on your foot. No, in my faith, you can be healed of this. So how to put those two pieces together is still you know, Jesus is still working that out for me. Um, but what I saw was the need for prevention. And my concern was who is working on preventing the traumas? We all know that there is, there's actually an industry um, in supplying mental health services to people who've been traumatized. We have to be honest with ourselves that there are organizations and agencies that profit off of people's brokenness. Um, and I just didn't want to be a part of that. So um, it's really important to me that I work on the prevention side because I think that is my lane. There are people who there is a specific calling for a person who's working with people who are traumatized. And I admire that and I love that. But there's also a lane, and I believe this is where the church comes in, where we work on the prevention of traumas. Speaking of uh, churches, <laughs> did you keep that up? Did you keep that up for me? That was a really easy transition. I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you, uh, uh, Pastor Mary. Could you uh, let everyone know kind of uh, what you do at Faith Covenant Fellowship, and also uh, just how you the the people that you serve and that you love and really are are family to. Basically, right. how you how do you see them navigating through all of these cycles of trauma, and also. Um, the history of Richmond and how do you feel that faith is your faith is uh, uniquely equipped to kind of help them with that? Um, well, one thing um, that I see, you know, as far as them working through it, I don't think they actually work through it. You know, one thing they, they feel that they are separate 
and apart from everything else as far as even God, you know, because they figured that even the, the churches don't want anything to do with them. You know, my, my whole, and what we do is we connect with the community. We try to show them that there is a worth in them. You know, we try to show, we don't want to give too much as far as material things. You understand what I'm saying? We want to teach them how to get material things and teach them that in us working, we can accomplish a lot of things. You know, so it's, um, I go into the neighborhood a lot and um, I usually work Creighton and Fairfield and Mosby. Mosby is where the church is. I can walk up any place, you know. What I do is try to show them that you have worth. You do have worth. You know, and the way to do that, um, we we do give a lot to, I say that, you know. <laughs> but what we do is just like with Christmas, when we give the Christmas giveaway, you know, we may have to go and get a trailer and go out and get the, the toys and the gifts and all. But I will go to the problems, you know, maybe the drug dealers. And I'll go to that corner, I say, I need your help. I can't do this alone. I need you to help me to unload this this tractor trailer to set it up in the church. And I need to know that no one is going to break in before we can give it out. So we never have had a problem the whole time we've been there. And we do this every year. And this has been like 14 years that we've never had a problem of them breaking and taking toys or taking any of that, you know, because I go straight to them. Um, a friend over here beside me, she came with me. We did the, the um, summer night lights, and she came to me and asked me if the church would host it. We say, yes, we will. But what we did on the days that we had it was to go out and ask the neighborhood to come and help us set up. Because you do have, there's some things that you can do. And what we need to teach them is their self-worth, that you, you, you have something to contribute. You know, and another thing that we do... Um, which is so menial. It may not be menial. You know, it's so little, it's so silly. But we will bake cupcakes or bake cookies. And we'll go, we'll give everything else away, but you're gonna buy a cupcake for a quarter. Because everything is not free. You understand what I'm saying? And it's helping the young children to know that, oh, I have to go and, and they may not have a quarter, but they may have a penny. You pay for it. And when you pay for things, you get something. About three times a year, we'll take them for a weekend, a weekend trip from Friday until Saturday, Sunday morning, we come on back. But that weekend trip, we'll go to a different resort. We've taken them a lot of places. But that weekend, you, we're going to go out, we're going to make cupcakes, we're going to make cookies, and we're going to go out and we're going to raise our own money. And when we raise our $25 for the weekend, is all they have to that's all it costs. God is so good and gracious. All it costs is $25. When they raise that, and we have our little form where you've gone out, and we've gone out together and you've raised it, then this is what you got. You got to get out of the city and see that there is something else in life. You understand what I'm saying? See, they are stuck in, that, in this one place. Can't get out. Okay, I'm stuck here. I can't get out. I'm just stuck here. There's just things in the way. If I go too far, I don't know what's going to happen. But we have to show them that there is another way other than 
in the hood. You know, there are things that you can get, but you have to work for it. You have to want it enough to work for it. And then there's a thing of teaching. Because if I've had a baby at 13, I don't know how to raise one. So they come in, I've had one girl that was 25, had three children. Well, what are we going to eat today, Pastor Mimi? I said, you know what? I'm going to show you because you're going to come in the kitchen and you're going to fix it. Oh, I don't cook. And I know she didn't cook. Got to see what she feed her children. But I'm going to teach you to make one thing, a big stew. Here, saute these, this hamburger here. Let's put some onions and green peppers in it. Okay, now, come on. Let's get see what's in the cabinet. And we'll get out cans of stuff and put it right in there. Put all that stuff in it. Okay, let's put some macaroni in it. Okay, let's season it. Now taste it. This is so good. I say you made it. A simple thing like washing dishes. Do you hear me? They don't know how to wash dishes. So we get together and we have to teach them. It's so much I want to do in that neighborhood. But I'm sure Alan can tell you most of the time I'm there, me and my husband, two old people, <laughs> doing what we can. <laughs> he, he would disagree. He would disagree. <laughs> doing what we can to teach who we can teach, you know, because we don't we don't have the resources to hire nobody, you know, because if we don't pay the bills, trust me, it won't be paid. So my little, the Lord, that my little social security check, honey, God can do some things with that. <laughs> but the point is we have to show self-worth, show each individual they can do. I had one girl, Donisha came in, Donisha Vacuum. And I said, Donisha, you did a beautiful job. She helped me to fill up some little water things to put in the freezer. And she said, I'll put the top on it. She put the top on it. I said, you did a good job. You could do that. I'll be back and help us. You come back and help me. You know, because we have to show them there's something you can do. You know, and then we have to show them that you, we can't keep giving. We can't keep giving. And then we have to be one, that, one person that's, that's committed. You know, I'm committed to being there on Wednesdays and Fridays. I'm telling you right now, it is hard. Sometimes it's hard getting there Wednesday and Friday because we have to pick up the food to bring in to feed them. Then you have to cook the food. Then you have to try to teach them something. But if I'm not there, then I'm a liar. And they've been lied to so much. So someone has to be committed enough that they know that you're going to be there. I was there one day, and I came early, and I hid my car. And they start banging on the door. Well, she's here. Today is Wednesday. She's here. But they were early, see? And I was trying to get something done. And I could hear them say, oh, she's here. You don't have to worry. Pastor Mimi is here. I had to go open the door. <laughs> I had to open the door. See, I told you, she's here. So it ha you, you have to be consistent. It's good coming in there doing different things. It's good to come in there and have all kinds of events. But you need to come back. And you need, somebody need to see your face all the time so that you become familiar, not just to jump in and jump out. And that's one thing that's needed in that area. And, that, and, and let me tell you one other thing, and I'm going to be quiet because I could talk for 20 hours. <laughs> let me 
tell you one other thing. I was up in the neighborhood maybe about a week ago. And, you know, because I have to go up and show my face and pray, you know, and, you know, try to help. And if you go and pray, stand on the corner where the drug dealers are and say, come on, we're going to pray. Everybody come. And we pray, you know, because that's what they need. And I was up there the other day and about three or four different guys started running over there to me. That's Pastor Mimi. I just want to tell you, you have been helping four generations. And I don't think I've been there that long. I really don't, you know, seriously, I think he had a problem. You've been, you've helped four generations. I want you to know four of us have been there with you. You've helped us. And I want you to know we appreciate it. Now, see, just that. Another boy run up there. Pastor Mimi, I want you to know I heard you. And I'm going to college. I said, well, praise God. Then another one will come up. You don't know who they are because you, it's so many kids. But you try to give as much love as you can. You know, we go out and we'll give them, you know, the little crosses. And I looked and the drug dealers were standing there with the little crosses on selling drugs. I say, Lord. I say, is this, is this what it's supposed to be? <laughs> but if we could just have, you know, regular people there every week, just regular people there, you know. Or if I could hire regular people there, you know, to show them that we are constant, we're consistent, and we are there. And, you know, we're, we're going to be there for you, you know, and they will gravitate to you. A lot of them came. A lot of them came to help, didn't they? They came to, Pastor Mimi, what you want me to do? You know, because I'll go out, and I found out that I have to go out and ask them to help. You know, you help. I'm trying to help your neighborhood. You help me. You know, but what we need to do is teach them their self-worth, create jobs that they can do. You know, we have a, a, a thrift store, and I work a lot with the kids, and that's where the teenagers were today. They were at the thrift store, and I'm teaching them to be entrepreneurs. This is what you can get if you do this. But if you don't do anything, you're going to be stuck where you are. You know, we have to teach them that having babies for a check is not going to. I'm sorry to say that, but I have to say it. Having babies for a check is not the way because we have more here. You know, we're worth, that's not your worth. That's not your worth. You're worth more than that. You understand? You prepare before you happen. So this is what I'm teaching my, my young kids, my, my guys, the teenagers coming. We have talks and I try to teach them that, you know, how to, to make a living, how they can do something. And I try to give a job to each individual and show how, how they can do it well. You know, my husband, he was a contractor, so he teaches the boys a lot of things. He gets, gets kind of nervous, but I told him you have to just let them do it, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent. Let them do it, and they'll know that they did something. So, that, you know, this is, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it's good. I mean, I, I, it's, it's important, yeah. It's important, and, and what, what we're talking about, a, a sustained stream of revolution, and, and what you were saying about consistency, and what Katie was saying about consistency, um, uh, the, and that's what we're talking about, the difference between a rotation and a revolution is how long it's sustained. Anything can, anything can revolve around itself once, right? But what's going to take to change the cycle is sustaining it and doing it consistently. Uh, and uh, when we're talking about family, when we're talking about trauma, when we're talking about education, when we're talking about law, um, um, 
and in, in, in a society where the core lies even goes into the individual's value, how they value themselves, what they think they're able to do, um, and the trauma and things that have come from that, um, Officer uh, Adams, how, 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 what was your philosophy in really wanting to really bring the community care approach to, to uh, policing and tell us more about what you're doing and also your help also with uh, trauma and uh, the survivors of domestic abuse because you're from Haiti. Unless there's something else on your heart. <laughs> no, no, I think I get that. Um, well, before I became a police officer, I worked in the sheriff's department for about seven and a half years, but I've lived here all my life. I, well, I moved here when I was five and I'm 55 now, so I've been here for 50 years um, and came from a small place called Emporia, about 65 miles down the road. And so in my household, there was a lot of, we didn't have any needs. We had shelter, food, and those things, but there was a lot of violence in my household. So I grew up with a lot of internal fighting and domestic violence. And so as a young child, I would call for the police to come and they would come, but they didn't do a lot during those days. So it was the late seventies. And as a result of that, my father did take my mother's life in 1980 and I was in the next room. So my philosophy for community caring approach was a part of my experience as a child because I remember those officers coming to my house when I tell other officers and I say openly that police are supposed to be your knight in shining armor. They're supposed to come to protect you and especially children. I said they could be either your knight in shining armor or they could be your worst nightmare, one or the other. And that was my perspective as a child because that night when they came, even when my mother's life was, had been taken, I remembered them as a 17-year-old watching from the other room their interactions and their behaviors, which brought me the wrong way because I really didn't have a care for them for this. And now that I'm at this point, I really don't like them at all. And so my father was sentenced to seven years with five years suspended so he only served 18 months for murder. So I had a disdain for the criminal justice and police officers because they were supposed to protect. And then we were supposed to have justice. So as time passed, um, I went to work at the sheriff's office. And while I was in the jail, going there every day, and I didn't like the place, but I went because I had three children that I was trying to take care of. But while I was there, I met a lot of wonderful people who had committed some horrific crimes, but I got to know these people. So after seven years, I decided I wanted to, I I wanted to meet people before they went to jail. And I say, God played a trick on me and he made me become the police because I didn't like the police. <laughs> and the odds all were against me being a 99 pound female. And I'm still a 99 pound female, <laughs> 21 and a half years later. <laughs> but it wasn't until I started receiving those calls to go to those houses 
And when I would receive those domestic calls and I was responding to my house, I was responding to my family. I was seeing my face on the faces of those children. So I knew that this is where God wanted me to be. So that's where my passion comes from. I used to live at the top of the hill in Mosby, where she serves. So I've been in those places. And when we talk about equity and access, accessibility, intervention and prevention, we have everybody working on intervention. So that means that we are actively waiting for things to happen. We're not working proactively to prevent things from happening or to change the systems we have in place. And I often say that we're still trying to drive the same, the first car Ford ever made because we're still trying to operate in a system and we are expecting different results and it is the same system. And we sit at the table and we know that and we acknowledge it, but being bold enough to step out and to do something about it and to, to, to ask, why are we still trying to operate in the system? And me being a part of government is really peculiar and funny because I call myself a secret agent. I want to be at the table. I want to hear. I want to understand. I want to learn, but to teach to go back to the neighborhood, to the community, to teach how to navigate, how to go to the General Assembly, how to be an advocate for yourself. Because like I say, when this happened to me at 17, I had to make a decision whether or not I would live with relatives because I didn't have any parents because my father was gone to jail and my mother was gone on to be with Jesus whether I would live with other adults or would I just take chances living on my own? And I took the chance of living on my own. I had to advocate social security. I had to advocate being able to be an advocate for me and my sister to be able to stay in the house that we were renting, but nobody ever came to look. So nobody ever really knew who took care of us. The social systems, were not there. The church was not there. And my mother belonged to the church, which was three blocks away. And I remember those three ladies came one time to visit us. And the police never came back. The defense attorney, the man that represented my father, came one time. So by the grace of God, do I get to sit here in this journey that the Lord has me on um, to to try to help be a light and a beacon of hope. Because when I go and I intentionally go places in my uniform and I tell my story, because when we, even this hierarchy that we think that we're, that we live in, sometimes your profession makes, will allow people, regardless of your race, put you in this hierarchy as that, as if life cannot happen to you also. Um, so, my passion is about my life experiences, but when my, 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 my role model was my grandmother, and her name is Mary, and she lived to be 100 years old. And when my father murdered my mother, 
she sat my sister and I down and she told us we couldn't hate him because we had to allow God to fix what had been done and to take care of him. If we hated him, that would redirect our course, our lives from what God has ordained for us. So my father could still go to my grandmother's house and sit at her table and eat her food. He was, she was, no one was allowed to say anything mean to him or to hurt a hair on his head. And this was my mother's baby, my grandmother's baby child. So she didn't just tell us how to act and how to treat people. She demonstrated that. And she gave away everything. So my heart and all of my traits and my behaviors come from that lady who lived to be 100 years old, who didn't just tell me, but she showed me how to act. She showed me how to love. And she, she lived on a farmhouse where there's still no running water and no bathroom. So when we talk about demographics and growing up on the farm and we talk about these communities and these neighborhoods of unserved, that's underserved, we talk about fresh, fresh, fresh fruits and teaching parents how to cook. But you just don't know what you don't know. And so that goes back to accessibility. And if you can't, if you don't see it, you may not believe that it truly, truly exists. And with me working with the kids and the families and the moms, every mom and dad wants the exact same thing for their children. But every mom and dad does not have the same capacity or capability to those resources. And in policing, you know, that's still a part of that, that system where you have all odds against you. And then I come and I arrest you. And that's another sack on your back that you cannot detach from. So, and if I arrest you, you have to spend money that you don't have a decent job for fines. And then DMV would take away your driver's license so you can't go to work. So, you know, it's just this system that we're in and trying to help families understand how things work but being put in a place also to have some control over that to some degree. So I, that excites me, but I, I, and I didn't understand at first why God put me and gave me such a burden to carry um, in the work, because sometimes I do get tired. And as you talked about, you know, creating the Carol Adams Foundation was important to me because I would, as an officer, take families to places that they said they had resources and you know they have a beautiful brochure but when I get there they don't have anything so that was what made me decide that I wanted to create my own resources and that whenever I told someone something like Miss Mary says if you're going to be there you have to be there and if you promise something you must follow through and in this work it is holistic you have to be there all the time if that's one two or three in the morning you have to be there and the people in the community call me Carol, and I teach them to call me Carol and not Officer Carol, not Sergeant Carol, because if they have to call me at a critical time, I don't want them to slip up and say Officer Carol in front of someone who may not like the fact that they are friends with the police or that they're talking to the police, but they know that I'm going to be a lifeline for them and I'm going to get them whatever it is they need by some, some means. And so... Like Nicole talked about trauma, is that onion, and there's trauma at every layer. 
in from the core and even before the babies are born because mom has been through so much trauma and because that person is in front of you don't mean that you're dealing with you cannot see who you're dealing with because they have been impacted to such a such depth that they don't really even know how to articulate that and for me officers look at me when I first came I'm happy-go-lucky and one day this guy had been there for like 25 years he said why are you so damn happy <laughs> so every day I say good morning how are you good morning how are you and mind you they had no idea what I had gone through because God didn't make me appear that way I always have a smile and when I talk about those guys that came to my house that night how about I came to work with them I remember them, but they don't remember me. And until last year, the last one retired, but they have no idea who I am, but I have some idea who they are. So when God put me in this place, it was to teach the police how to treat the people on the other side of the tape, because I've been on the other side of that tape. I'm one of those people. So I'm automatically going to go to the grieving family, to the other side of the I'm going to take the time to talk with them and to explain our processes. And that's something else that we don't do good at in government or in systems. We don't explain what's going to take place. And we just assume that everybody understands that or how it's going to be navigated. We have to stop and not and, and to share with them. I just want to, to you to understand what will happen. And so that's what I'm afforded the opportunity to, to be, is to teach the police how to interact with the citizens, but then to also to teach the citizens how to interact with the police and what their rights are and what processes can take place and to walk them in to make a complaint with internal affairs if that's what needs to be done and to tell them how to tell their story if that's what needs to be done because that's how we get true justice. If we're gonna be transparent and we have things in place, we need the community to know that we do police the police and that that's what we want to be understood right off the bat. And so if there's injustice, we want to know who's doing that because we don't want that person to be on our team. And I don't think that's said enough in open public when we talk about policing and we talk about transparency. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. and, and uh, for your work and for all of you, thank you for the work and this, the streams that you guys uh, are creating to change the cycle of our city. Um, just one last question for whoever would like to answer. Um, how can the, the faith community support or continue to support uh, the streams that you guys have? Like, what, what would you request? Well, I would like to see the churches come together because a heck of a force if all of the churches come together. And in Richmond, we have a church on every block almost. And if every church adopted the community that it sat within, they don't have to go across town to work. If they worked in their own neighborhood, and if the doors were open other than Wednesday and Sunday, the building is there, the people are there. And I have yet in my police uniform to talk to someone who did not want help. But we have to be willing to extend that olive branch. We have to be willing to, like like Miss Mary, is to get out and to talk to people. Lost souls, that's what God put the church there for. And the lost souls are not the souls that are sitting inside the church. <laughs> 
they're the ones on the outside of the church. And when I read in the Bible, Jesus was in the temple and he was pissed off. <laughs> so it's about getting outside and it's about being united. And it's not about being territorial, but it's about working for God and doing, uh, being about his work. And one thing at the police department, we have what's called a faith leaders initiative. And I worked a long time to try to put together this directory. And this directory has, you know, different churches, but different resources also. So if you're, if Miss Mary is doing one thing, Nicole is doing something else, and the uh, everybody's doing something. So Miss Mary can say, well, you go over there and you talk to her, and she has such and such. And but so there's enough work for everyone, but we have to be willing enough, first of all, to lay aside the differences and to understand that we all have the blood of Jesus. We all do and stop being territorial. And that's what I've found in the last 10 years with working with the faith community is that if it's not in my, and I'm not the leader, and I'm not the leader, and Jesus, God is the leader, but that's, that's one of the, that, and I really agree with you because the faith community have to stop being in the church trying to save the same people every Sunday. You know, whereas I'm serious, we need to, Jesus went out. He went out and we need to go out. Yeah, come to church so you can, can learn and so you can get filled and so you can know what, what you're capable of doing through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because it's not by your might or power, but it's by the spirit of the Lord. He's not asking you to know anything because I don't know nothing. He's not asking you to have any, any strength because I'm 75 years old. I ain't got no strength. He's not actually to have all this knowledge because I don't know too much or anything. But he has the knowledge. He will lead God and direct you. And he will give you the strength and he will open up doors for you. But we have to be a body that he can use and get out there. And it's time for the faith community, just like where I am, all those churches. We, when I knock on those doors, say, come on, we're going to do this. They don't want to come out. We need to come out. That's what we have been assigned to do is to come out, not to stay in but to come out and to be that force where they're going to see you. You know, if it's just a smile, they will see, they know you're going to be there. You know, and we used to serve um, five days a week, breakfast and dinner. We did that up until two years ago, I think it was. You know, then when I realized I was getting old and that I had to back up a little bit because it was a little bit too much on, but we would be there every day and the kids would be able to eat breakfast, eat lunch and eat a snack. And on Fridays, take a bag home because God supplied all of that. He supplied it, you know, because me and my husband, this, this church is run from our salaries because they don't have any money there, but God sent the food and everything that we could do what it is he had ordained us to do. So it wasn't us. It was him. We just said, okay. So the churches need to, even if they send one person each time that we're, we're there, one person there to help and to go out to the next. We have to change this around, folks. And nobody's going to do it but us. You know, we call ourselves a Christian, and I need to be quiet. But, but if we read in 2 Corinthians, what it say, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and heal the land. He can't heal the land because of nobody else. He's going to heal it because of us. So we got to step up to the plate. I agree with you. 
I agree with you. Um, I have three things that I would love to see my city, especially the body of Christ of Richmond, to do. Uh, it's funny that you say. So one of the first ones is jurisdiction. Just like the police have jurisdiction, I would love for each church to know that they have not just spiritual jurisdiction of the community that they are a part of, the community that they are physically presented in, but they have physical jurisdiction. So if they see something that happens in the news and is right down the street in the community that they are central to, then they take responsibility of it rather than saying, well, where are the police? Well, where is social services? No, no, we, we have the solutions to these challenges. Um, summer Night Lights is a program that Pastor Gleaton and myself have worked on. This summer was the first time that we did it. I would love to see, essentially, uh, 12 churches came together. Nine were Eastern churches. Three of them were from the West End that donated finances and came together to represent the body of Christ in Mosby Court. Mosby Court was... Uh, selected by the police department um, and the attorney general's office acknowledges acknowledges it as one of the highest crime areas in the state not just in the city um, so it was between Mosby and Gilpin that they gave us so I love that we saw cross-culture that was not my intention but we saw different ages different races different denominations coming together um, and I would love to see that not just happen in the east end, but happen in the south side, happen in the north side, and we'd love to see it happen next summer. The other thing is being born and raised in Richmond. What happens every Thanksgiving for churches? What happens? We give out turkeys. What happens every August before school starts? And what are the results of that? Yeah. So... <laughs> Thanks to RCLI, uh, we had a book that we had to read um, by Mr. Upton, Richard Upton, I think, uh, Robert Upton. And it says there are four levels of charity. And Richmond has specialized in one level of charity, but now I'm asking us to come up. So the highest level of charity is that not that you give things, but that you offer jobs and opportunities for people to get their own things. So let's move from where we have been. We've mastered it. We got it. We know how to give you the best turkey. We know how to give you the most amazing book bags. But what do we do after that? Relationship hasn't been built. Dignity has been lost because now this person has to come to you and ask you for something that they feel like they should be able to get on their own. Um, so I'd like us to come up. Going upstream. That's what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, we'll just keep going. Uh, so it's interesting to having this conversation. Our CEO was just talking with someone at the General Assembly uh, this week and, and just acknowledging that in this community, if it was not for Crossover Healthcare Ministry and other free clinics, we have community members who would die. I mean, that's the sad reality of it is without the, the, the you know, the, the, the giving of, of charities in the United States of America, there are people who would die without charity. We are, the government is not taking care of people. The system that it is, is not taking care of people. And so the conversation that we have just had this week is we need the church to know that we need to the church to understand that there are physical needs that are not being met. 
Jesus spent a lot of his time meeting physical needs. And sometimes the church isn't doing that. I agree with you, though, that we need to go beyond just the, the handouts. But but what what are where our society is functioning right now is not working for a large proportion of our society. The need is growing. The need is changing. Um, and what's hard, I think now more than ever, I think poverty is hidden. It is, it is easy for people to, to kind of be sequestered. Um, and so people don't realize how, how many of our brothers and sisters are hurting. Uh, how many people just on our neighborhood need help. It's, and this has helped to survive, not even to thrive. We want them to thrive. Believe me, we want them to thrive, but we have to continue to work just to make sure that people are surviving so they can get to that point of thriving. Okay, six quick things. Um, <laughs> so first, every congregation should schedule some letter writing. Um, you know, I did it in my own church um, this spring, and, you know, the vast majority of people didn't know who their legislators were, right? They'd never written a letter. It just like... You know, we're not taught how to do this. So we have to help people in our congregations know who their legislators are and write them some letters or call them or whatever. And we can organize that in our congregations. If every congregation did that, we'd pass a lot better laws in the General Assembly. Um, so that's one. Number two, um, we do have, we're going to have an opportunity to get 400,000 people to have health care uh, through Medicaid expansion. The government um, and the social services, they'll probably find about 200,000 of the folks who are eligible um, because they're already connected to social services in some way. But then there's going to be another 200,000, mostly single um, or, or married folks without kids um, who are the working poor um, who we have to find and get into Medicaid. Um, and again, the churches ought to be the best way to help reach a lot of those folks. Uh, third thing, the General Assembly has a short session, which means, praise God, it's only six weeks. Um, and, and so there's a lot you can do during that. We have a lobby day on January 22nd. Love you to come. I run a witness at the Capitol program where I take volunteers to be with me on a regular basis at the Capitol. Love any of you to do that. We also, for those of who you can't come to the Capitol, we have a social media team that helps get the word out as well. Love you to help during the General Assembly. Four, um, because of the crisis for the immigrant community, we created a sanctuary network of congregations in, in the Richmond area. Um, we have 130 volunteers on the transportation committee that are like helping immigrants go to their detention hearings or ICE hearings or whatever. We have a hospitality committee that's helping the woman that's in sanctuary at First UU. Um, we have a fundraising committee that's helping raise funds for uh, both bail and for, um, for legal fees to help immigrants facing de deportation. So th there's a whole network of congregations involved in supporting immigrants through this sanctuary network. Love you on that. Fifth, we have a program here in Richmond that we're doing jointly with the Mayor's Office of Community Wealth Building called a Living Wage Certification Program, where we are certifying employers that pay living wages. We've defined the gold star standard as $16 an hour, the silver as uh, $12.50 an hour, and then we have an aspiring one at 11. 
Um, and so we're certifying businesses. So we need help finding businesses that are paying that so we can certify it and then helping push other businesses to get those wages up so we can certify them. So we could use help with outreach to businesses. And finally, um, you know, things are not going to change if people don't vote. Um, and, and so we got to register people to vote and congregations could help a lot with registering people to vote and making sure that people go to the polls uh, in November. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. Did you want to give an opportunity? Yes, sir. Department, they allow me to be creative and to do pretty much anything that I can, my little mind can think of. So when I'm out walking and talking in the community that people are always talking about jobs. And so on um, next Thursday, August the 23rd, um, myself, Miss Clovia Lawrence and the Richmond Police Department, we are hosting a Korea Expo and vendors are absolutely free. And so I bought some flyers so that you can share. Um, we have about 35 employers that are gonna be there. And so we don't just want employers, we service providers can come also because we know that there will be additional needs. And if you know of anyone that's looking for a job, please send them. And this is for everyone. We are specific about um, bringing on employers who will hire individuals with you know, challenges in their background because everyone needs to be employed. And so we try to focus on everyone. And so if you know of someone, please come out and, um, or send them out and they can participate. And just look for this annually, um, quarterly, because that's one of our goals. And we do do a lot of work with um, individuals returning from within the system. I don't know if you've heard of the RBA Safer Streets Basketball League. Okay, so that is in this second year, I believe. And tomorrow at John Marshall High School, if you're not doing anything, come out. Um, we have the championship game. But this is about 12 basketball teams that come from around the city, Whitcomb, Mosby, Fairfield, and places like that, where um, according to one group of people, these people could not be in the same room together. They cannot play a game together without wanting to shoot and hurt each other. And we've been doing this for two years. And so in 75% of them are employed and 75% um, of them do have a GED or high school education and some of them do go to college. So the data that we are collecting is painting, is showing us the true picture. And it's that they're, you know, they're not people or individuals who are not goal oriented and that are not working towards having a healthy household. And so, and these are 147 African-American men from the ages of 18 to 40. Thank you. And, and, um, and speaking of dates, um, <laughs> the our the summit where we are going to be organizing and talking about more than words, where where our society in this whirlpool that we are living in, it took more than words to get us here. It's going to take more than words for us to change the cycle. That is going to be Thursday, September thirteenth, and Friday, September fourteenth. I know earlier, uh, Lisa said the fifteenth, but it's September thirteenth and September fourteenth. Uh, you can leave your uh, email information with us in the back if you guys want to be uh, get more information about joining in. But again, as we were saying, it's not about events and it's not about rotations and silos. It's about revolution, sustained presence, sustained streams of, of uh, revolution. And so we're definitely going to take to heart what they requested and seeing how there are ways that uh, an IFC with Faith would organize and that we can support these streams and help them to become revolution. So thank you, everyone. Can we give them a round of applause for coming? Thank you very much.
for coming. Thank you to you all for going upstream with us. And uh, hopefully this has helped you all to kind of understand systems thinking a little bit more and getting more excited about uh, connecting our streams together so we can change the cycle of our city. Um, that's all that I have for you all. So we are dismissed. Thank you. I know we're a little over time or maybe uh, just a little over time. That's good. <laughs> so thank you all for coming. Thank you, everyone, for, for, for being here. Officer Adams, Pastor Mary, Nicole, Katie, uh, Kim, thank you so much. And we, we look forward to uh, seeing these relationships. Thank you, everyone. And there you have it. The first, a difference in conversation live going upstream so what were your thoughts what stood out to you i know for me uh definitely uh officer adams's story of uh wanting to transform her community and her powerful story of how she remembered the officers but the officers did not remember her and how that was her really just a pivotal moment of really wanting to make sure that because a lot of times people say well how can we how can we have the community change their mind about officers but what's the process of having officers change their mind about the community uh and just the history of how you know director kim really broke down how we are literally still living with uh, the effects of laws that were formed in mind for people during the times of slavery, that's so crazy to me, and with the wage laws and, and, and right to work and all those, uh, all those other laws, like the whirlpool is real. Uh, the question is, minding your momentum, are you going to contribute to streams that sustain the current status quo, or are we going to resist? And if you're going to resist, maximize your momentum right as as uh we were talking about the very solar system teaches us that if you want to measure impact in days start a rotation or just a silo stream but if you want to measure impact in years start a revolution which is a sustained system of streams sustained streams of revolution well this is this was uh, a great event for for uh for me i got a lot of it hopefully you all did too just two things before I let you all go. Uh, Officer Adams, as she was talking about, the Career uh, Opportunities uh, Expo uh, is, if you're in the Richmond area, August 23rd, 2018, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Arthur Ashe Center, 3001 North Boulevard. Um, if you're hearing this podcast and you're an employer, uh, there still are more employers uh, that are needed. And also Community Clove is going to be uh, uh, heading that up. And so, uh, come on out. If you need a job, come on out. It's a great time. Uh, Carol Adams is really passionate about uh, providing opportunities for people. Uh, a great example for the community. Also, the summit that I talked about is September 13th and 14th. It's going to be called More Than Words, Embracing the Truth and Disrupting the Cycle. And we're going to be training faith leaders on how they can go through a truth-telling process so people have a common understanding of what's been going on in Richmond and also equipping them to do the work to, as Michael Mata says, write the history of the future. Well, thank you all for listening. This has been uh, a special edition of A Difference in Thought, A Difference in Conversation live going upstream. Thank you for joining in. If you have any questions or uh, uh, you can send me an email at a difference in thought at gmail.com. 
I will request again that if you are digging the podcast, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes. It helps a lot. Um, And so, thank you for joining us for this special edition of A Difference in Thought. I'm your host, Charlie Ray. I love you. I love you. That's why I'm here. Go upstream. Peace.